this series was independently funded, so you could gain insight into how the media operates. Journalists rarely report on their own practices. If you're interested in hearing more from others under the spotlight, you can help by making a one-off contribution. Just click on the link in the show notes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine shivering for 43 days in the freezing mountains of Nepal without food or shelter, clinging to thoughts of family back home in Australia and faith in God, until finally spotted by a search party. Imagine the relief once rescued, having defied all expectations of what a human could endure, only to face media speculation that you might have staged a hoax. How did James Scott survive? The name may have faded from public recognition since 1992, but mention the guy who ate a Mars bar when lost in the Himalayas, and someone somewhere will say, oh yeah, I remember him. Only there wasn't a Mars bar. It's one of the tales that were twisted around James, helping define his turbulent media experience. I still believe that the story... It was an amazing story, a really good news story. It was a story of hope, a story of love, a story of what a family and community can achieve when they all pull together. But when the media covered it, they lost that message. Some aspects of the story got trashed by the media, and that's left me feeling a bit jaded. James Scott is an accidental celebrity, an ordinary Australian who faced an extraordinary event that was devastatingly traumatic and highly newsworthy. He unexpectedly rose to prominence, an unknown plucked from obscurity by a shrewd industry that feeds our fascination with adversity and the strength of the human spirit. The loss of anonymity is a huge negative. I think anonymity is priceless. Now James is prepared to risk public attention again, to turn the spotlight on the media. He provides rare insight into the relentless pursuit of private individuals caught up in high-profile news events. Like the other trauma survivors in this series, he participated in coverage. But why? I'm Fiona Reynolds, a journalist and former media executive who helps expose the tricks of a competitive trade, the betrayals of truth and trust in the hunt for commercial gain. Be warned, you'll hear some swearing as James speaks frankly about his wrestle for control and the price of fame. This is the inside story on what it's like to become an accidental celebrity. Episode 2, The Iceman. What was to be an easy five-day hike in the Himalayas turned into a 43-day test of physical and mental strength. Thank you. 
James Scott was 22 years old when he set out on an ill-fated trek on the 19th of December 1991. Assured by Nepalese villagers that the weather would be fine, the medical student from Australia's sunshine city of Brisbane wore a straw hat, sand shoes and carried a backpack, planning to sleep and eat at lodges along the way. Three days in, winter snow began to fall, prompting him to leave a walking companion and go back. But with the trail soon hidden, James was stranded and alone. A friend waited for him to stroll back into Nepal's capital, Kathmandu. Ten days after James set out, the fellow Australian sent a fax home. I do not wish to alarm you unnecessarily, but I feel I should inform you that James may be in some difficulty. Shocked and scared, the Scott family scratched together enough money for James's big sister Joanne Robertson and close friend Andrew Ross to travel 9,500 kilometres to coordinate a complex search in a foreign country with little help from Australian authorities. Another 10 days went by as Ken and Janet Scott anxiously waited for word on their son, eventually alerting local media to the potential tragedy. With an engagement celebration for James and his distraught fiancée Gay Ryan just a week away, the family wanted to let 120 invited guests know that he hadn't returned from South Asia. Everyone kept RSVPing for our engagement party and it was getting really distressing for mum and dad because people would ring up and say, oh, I'll come to the engagement party and they'd say, oh, actually, James has lost and, of course, there'd be questions about what had happened and such. So they made a decision they had to tell people what had happened so they'd stop getting all these phone calls and they could let everyone know. The whole situation was just so distressing for them. In the days before social media, personal messaging and the widespread use of email, mainstream media was the quickest and most effective method of mass communication. James Scott has not been seen for 27 days, but his family weren't aware of the situation for a week of that. I'm afraid we we now fear for James's uh, well-being. Reports on the missing Australian remained local and lasted just three days. No news of lost student. The man who disappeared in the mountains then also disappeared from the headlines. While it's easier to gather and distribute details on distant events today, one hiker lost overseas due to his own misadventure still isn't deemed as newsworthy as a walker missing in nearby bushland, let alone a miracle survivor. A Brisbane medical student has been found alive in Nepal long after he'd been given up for dead. On the 3rd of February 1992, Just over two weeks after the Scott family went public and almost a month after Sister Joanne began the search, a helicopter team discovered an emaciated then 23-year-old James waving from a snow-covered mountainside at least 3,500 metres above sea level. A ground party immediately trekked in. James was found sheltering under a rock ledge and winched to safety the following day. A one in a million chance, he thought. The remarkable ordeal and survival earned him a nickname, 
international media attention and the front page of newspapers across Australia. Miracle Iceman found alive in Himalayas. Alive after a month in an ice cave. Chiki Ozzy, a miracle man. I think it was a wonderful story. I still can't help but think it was a miracle. I'm a Christian and whenever my faith starts to sort of wane, which it does at times, I get back to thinking what happened. And there was no scientific reason as to why I should have survived. It just doesn't make sense. And when I was up in the mountain, I felt really very close to God. I felt very close to my family. I never felt alone. I think it's an amazing story of hope. I really do. But I think somewhere that message got lost. Within a day, the demand for interviews and images escalated. This story was unusual, had human interest value, and now there was at least the possibility news crews could reach James to see and hear from the Iceman himself. The Age newspaper reported that a 30-strong media pack was, quote, laying siege to the hospital site, while Brisbane-based The Courier-Mail wrote... The world's media has descended on the tiny kingdom of Nepal to invite Mr Scott to tell his story. Journalists are often accused of descending like vultures on the helpless, picking over their story before flying off to the next big event. How did James look after six weeks cold, hungry and isolated? Was he really as ill as his carers said? Simply satisfying public curiosity wasn't a good enough reason for the Scott family or doctors to let media into the hospital. Medical Superintendent Frank Garlick was dubbed not-so-frank by one writer as his team battled unethical, if not illegal, media behaviour to protect their patient. It just got so out of hand. It got so out of hand so quickly. The media had bombarded the family and now they're bombarding Parton Hospital, this is a third world hospital, the phone lines are jammed, the switchboard were jammed, emergency calls couldn't come in. And then journalists had paid people, paid staff to try and steal my medical records. To get them out, they tried to climb ladders outside to try and take photos of me through the windows. The hospital hired security guards. So I was aware that there was all this activity and distress going on. I think they worked very hard to try and keep me isolated from it all because I was still really sick. I was really unwell. But clearly there was a lot of pressure going on in the situation. I was hearing bits about it but couldn't understand quite how serious it was. James knew little about the media before facing the spotlight, nor did his family. The average person is never forced to navigate their way through a sea of insistent reporters, commercial offers and public pressure. Traumatised people are even less likely to be able to make informed decisions, which is why survivors typically trust the advice of others, whether an agent, lawyer, health professionals or police. James's father, Ken Scott, was a professor of biochemistry at the University of Queensland, so that was the first place the family turned for help. He made inquiries as to whether the university would be willing to handle all these approaches from media companies that my family were getting. And that originally pitched the university, said, you know, this is a way you could raise money for the university and give it to students. Anyway, the university had a meeting, I believe in the Senate, 
and they came back and said that they couldn't be seen to benefit from a student's misfortune. So they suggested Dad that they couldn't handle it, but they recommended that uh, Dad go speak to Harry Miller and get him to manage it. Um, he was identified as a person that could do this sort of work. And then independently, I had a friend who was a journalist who also reached out to my family and said, look, I can see what a terrible time you must be having. You should get Harry Miller to handle the situation. And by this stage, the financial offers were coming to my family and I didn't know what to do. Uh, they'd approached Gay, my fiance at the time, and they said, look, sign these documents and we'll fly you over to Nepal and you can be with James and, uh, you know, you can have time together and not really giving much explanation about what that would involve. And then another news station offered $80,000 and it just kept getting bigger and bigger. It was getting out of hand. The money was huge, huge money. Miller was already representing the most famous of Australian accidental celebrities, Lindy Chamberlain, whose baby daughter Azaria was taken by a dingo in 1980. Harry Miller was just like having a human Alsatian. The brash businessman had apparently been waiting for the Scott family to call. James was seriously ill, but clearly remembers with a smile the moment he first met Harry M. Miller. He came to Parton Hospital and he clearly didn't want to be there. He walked into my room, he had a white handkerchief over his face, worried about everyone had infectious diseases in the ward. You know, half the people there probably had tuberculosis. You can see he so didn't want to be there. Anyway, he came in and um, I'm pretty sure he had a tie and a suit and he was all dressed up. And he said, mate, you know, these media people, they're all bastards. They're all bastards. You can't trust any of them. Don't talk to any of them. I'm going to get it all under fucking control. You don't have to worry. I'll look after you. And he was gone. He kind of raced in and he raced out. And Joanne, I think, was quite antagonistic towards Harry initially. And Harry was saying, look, I'm here because your parents asked me to be here. It's not like I want to be here either. <laughs> that was kind of what Harry's take was on it. And so Harry sort of stepped in and said, there's to be no contact with the Scott family. All hospital inquiries have to come through me. No one's to contact the Scott family, no one's to contact the hospital. And just like that, everything went quiet. It all calmed down. All this chaos that was going on was brought to order by what Miller did. I was getting information from Joanne. I was probably speaking to mum or dad each day about it. And I remember them distinctly saying it was just such a relief to not be bombarded by all these phone calls. I just remember how relieved my family was when Harry stepped into the picture. To the media, the intervention of a self-proclaimed showbiz impresario was unwelcome. Melbourne-based newspaper The Age cried, The Iceman, a Harry M classic. When an agent is hired to support a survivor, a wave of disapproval typically washes over the reporting. The story can shift from portrayals of heroism and triumph over adversity to one of greed and attempts to capitalise on attention. Of course, Miller had to be paid for his services, as the media pointed out, while scornfully suggesting James too could profit. Ken Scott inadvertently fed that narrative by telling reporters the family had been handing out a big story for free and now needed to protect his son's interests. The comment wasn't clearly linked to the more than $50,000 that had been outlaid on the search. The family had spent a lot of money. A lot of that money was 
um, also given by friends or students who didn't have much money. So when financial offers started coming in, we certainly wanted to pay back those people who we felt we owed money to, but we weren't trying to make a profit. We weren't trying to do that. As Miller negotiated and James recovered, elements of the coverage shifted from celebratory to cynical. The waiting game for access to the Iceman angered reporters, according to the Sunday Age newspaper. The Iceman story on ice for a price. Even before Harry M stepped in, as far as the press was concerned, Scott would have been easier to reach had he stayed under the rock ledge. Almost two weeks after the rescue, an Australian medical team brought James back from Nepal. He recalls a journalist hid in the aircraft toilets before trying to approach for comment. Photographers and television cameras waiting on the tarmac were prevented from capturing pictures of James. A sheet was held up in front of the Iceman before a police motorcade escorted his ambulance to the Royal Brisbane Hospital. That may well have fueled the determination of some in the media rather than deterring them. There was a lot of really bad stuff that was going on. I had friends, these are medical students of mine, who told me they were offered by journalists that they would pay them $1,000 if they could take a photo of me when I was lying in my hospital bed when they would come up and visit me. Some reporters were doing things like ringing up friends and saying, oh, what can you tell us about James Scott? They'd get on the phone and act really nice and interested and such, and then the conversation would quickly get into trying to find out about sordid sort of details about me. I remember uh, there was one particular journalist and my friends were saying when I called by him and they said, no, I don't want to comment, he'd get really unkind, really nasty and intimidating towards him. So it was real gutter journalism that was going on by some people. We just can't handle all this. Miller fronted reporters at the hospital, defending his role as the go-between. You know all very well how intrusive you can be and how some of the questions you ask sometimes aren't really in great taste. By then, a print deal had already been signed with London's Daily Telegraph. The two-part feature, which ran over February and March 1992, also appeared in Sydney newspaper The Sun-Herald while the 60 Minutes program on Australia's Nine Network secured the television rights. The way Harry talked to us, he just said, take your time to get well. There's no pressure, just focus on getting well. And I think at the time that was really good advice that Harry gave us. The thing that was most appealing about the offer that 60 Minutes made was that there was no time frame in terms of when we had to talk. It was in the contract, you'll talk when you're ready. Whereas Channel 7 actually offered a lot more money if I were to do an interview with them, but the interview had to take place within a short period of time and I didn't think I'd be ready to do it at that time. When someone's been traumatised, they need a lot of space to tell their story. It's really important that they come away feeling like their experience has been valued and respected. Three weeks after the rescue, Australians were finally able to see James and hear his side of the story for the first time in part one of the newspaper feature... World exclusive, Miracle in the Himalayas. G'day, James. And a 30-second conversation with 60 Minutes reporter Richard Carlton. A thousand congratulations, young fella. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> How you are you feeling? Much. Oh, well, I felt worse. <laughs> But I still got a lot of pain in my feet and my vision's really disturbed. It's sort of, you know, I can't see properly. So I'm a bit disorientated, if you can understand that. 
That exchange, as James lay curled up in his hospital bed, was the down payment on a full interview at home aired two weeks later. It was not only an attempt by 60 Minutes to hold the public's interest, but to demonstrate the veracity of the survival story by showing just how ill the Iceman was. While James, his family and friends weren't speaking, reporters could still fill the void with conjecture. Media outlets, which then missed out on the exclusives, began running what are known as spoiler stories, content that's created to damage the coverage of a competitor. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Rumours about James Scott's feat of endurance began to circulate only a week after he was found in the snow-covered Himalayas. Did he really spend 43 days wasting away on a mountainside, reporters asked? The Courier-Mail newspaper noted, Many Nepalese find the story difficult to believe. Perhaps the Australian had been living it up in a village, another commented. Words like speculation help reporters avoid the need for proof, while any denial of claims provides another angle to an otherwise flimsy story. Remember, media don't just present facts, they construct versions of events. Snippets of what we could loosely term evidence are stitched together to explain what happened and who was affected. Information and opinions can be taken from almost anywhere. Family members, friends, official sources, unnamed sources, even casual acquaintances of a trauma survivor, and strangers deemed by journalists to be experts. In James's case, the search for answers led newspapers to interview people who weren't anywhere near the Himalayas when he was saved, yet cast doubt on his ability to survive so long sustained by chocolate bars and melted snow. They never actually came out and said the story was a hoax, but they'd suggest it might have been a hoax, and then they go and interview people who are sceptical of the story, who had questionable credentials, never been to Nepal, didn't know me, but they come out and say, oh, how could a person possibly survive 43 days? And they put these people up as experts as if they were telling the truth. And then I know that there were medical experts who approached the media, try to give a counter view that this could have been a true story, it was possible, and the media refused to interview these medical experts because it didn't fit in with their agenda. James's karate instructor swung in explaining how the black belt was extremely fit and had the mental discipline as well as medical knowledge to survive, while doctors in Nepal and Australia proclaimed on the front page of the Sunday Mail newspaper, It's not a hoax. Joanne says that... Joanne Robertson again came to her brother's rescue when interviewed by Nine's 60 Minutes program. Well, no, it was not a hoax. I suspect that the people who are calling it a hoax are the media people who were not concerned about the fact that all we wanted to do was to be left in peace until James was well enough to talk to people. I think some of the media outlets were really aggrieved that they didn't get the story. And because they didn't get it, they said about discrediting it. And it was short and sharp. It didn't go on for long in terms of the coverage, but it sowed those seeds of doubts in people's mind. 
And, you know, it's hard. Once people start to think a certain way, they have their own snowballing effect and it gets a life of its own. James recognises the competition and conduct weren't just confined to news media. He and Gay Ryan inadvertently placed themselves in the middle of warring magazines when they were married, four months after his dramatic return home. The couple offered all media the chance to take a wedding photo as a nice end point to the story, and were then enticed to give Woman's Day a honeymoon exclusive. James and Gay were rewarded financially and with positive coverage. The scene could be straight from the pages of a romantic novel. Newlyweds strolling along an idyllic tropical beach, arms entwined, lost in love and their shared dreams. Magazines play a big role in transforming ordinary people into accidental celebrities by digging into their personal lives for public entertainment. That doesn't mean the content is always soft. A week after the Woman's Day exclusive, rival weekly magazine New Idea headlined Iceman Melts Gay's Heart over what amounted to a spoiler article. They had the wedding photos like with a caption about our wedding, but then in the body of the story, they went on to say the questions raised about whether or not it was true in Nepal, and that was really distressing. They said, oh, there were sources from Nepal and they quoted a couple of people who we are still in contact with. We know that these people didn't say it. I was absolutely feral about it. I was so angry. I wrote to the editor a new idea and said, you know, how can you do this? Why do you have to spoil this? But I never got a response. James suspects Australians were also misled by a media fixation with the two chocolate bars he was carrying in his backpack and his agent's efforts to exploit that interest. Once Harry and Miller had sold James's story to news media, he began exploring opportunities to further commercialise the man's experience, in effect, reinforcing his celebrity status. Harry was looking for ways to make money out of the story and he said, you know, there's got to be money made from some of the stuff that you had. We can sort of approach companies. What sort of sleeping bag do you have? What sort of thermal underwear do you have? And all the stuff I had was cheap because I was a medical student. I didn't have much money at the time. It was all cheap. Harry said, why didn't you have Gore-Tex? Why didn't you have good quality stuff we're going to actually do something with? And so at the end of it, he was left for chocolate bars and then even that went south. Miller, who has since passed away, revealed in his memoir that he'd received a call from the makers of Mars bars in the United States, offering $500,000 if James said it was their product that kept him alive. The chocolate was actually Cadbury Dairy Milk, so Miller tried to get Cadbury Schweppes to make a similar offer. The wheeling and dealing was happening around the same time the exclusive interviews were being recorded. Harry Miller said, you know, you're going to make so much money out of this, I'm going to make you a fucking millionaire. And he said, whatever you do... Don't mention the name of a chocolate bar. Whatever you do, don't mention the name of a chocolate bar. Leave the rest to me. So that was Harry's advice, his words of wisdom at the time. When asked the brand of chocolate by reporter Eric Bailey from London's The Daily Telegraph, James followed his instructions and wouldn't say. Eric said, really? And I just replied, Harry told me not to. And he said, oh, okay. I felt like such a shit. 
James thought the Nine Network agreed that its 60 Minutes reporter, the late Richard Carlton, wouldn't even pose the question, so he didn't answer honestly. I initially said, I don't know, and I quickly said, no, that's not true. I've been told that I can't tell you. It was such a, I don't know, a stupid childish thing to say. Harry had said that I was under contract. I really, I think I was just really surprised by the question. You know, it was sort of this cut, cut, cut. And then they said, what, you know, what's going on here? I suppose from their point of view, they'd paid for an exclusive interview and they felt they had a right to know everything. So they got on the phone to Harry to find out what's going on. And I saw Carlton speaking to Harry and I could hear Harry shouting down the phone at Carlton. And I could just see Carlton was getting more and more angry. He was getting enraged by what was being said to him. And then the interview started again and Carlton said, okay, so we're all clear. We won't ask the brand of chocolate bars. That's off limits. We'll keep going. But the interview had changed. Suddenly it had become a very adversarial interview. Let me put it to you that you were a foolish young man to go trekking in sand shoes in snow-covered country. I disagree. Everyone assured us it wouldn't snow for another week. I was assured that morning it wasn't going to snow. And I, I think I was just the uh, very unfortunate and had bad information. You know, it was just this complete silver attack. It went on for about 20 minutes and it was just constant bombardment of questions from Richard saying I was foolish, I was stupid, I should apologise to everyone. And I was deflecting questions and answering honestly. And then he said... And what sort of chocolate bars were they? Uh, I don't want to answer that question. Why not? Well, it's endorsing a product. I don't think I should answer it. I just was so angry. Richard had actually said, OK, chocolate bars are off limits. We're not going to ask him more questions about that. And then he, he just lied. He went and asked a question. I felt like I'd kill him. You know, I was so traumatised. I had such a short fuse at that moment because I was so unwell and I really just wanted to clobber him. I had no balance. I had no vision. I carted away. And the whole interview broke down. We refused to do any more interviewing with them. All trust was gone. 60 minutes could have really damaged their reputation at the time. They had this footage of me sort of completely losing it and trying to attack Carlton and me saying, uh, when asked about the chocolate bars, I don't know. No, that's not true. So they could have made me look like I was lying. They could have made me look like I was completely out of control. I think in the end they decided that it wasn't in anyone's interest to sort of portray me that way. It wasn't who I was. And I think at least they didn't do that, which is really, I'm really pleased about because that would have caused enormous damage to me, enormous distress to my family. Mars ended up receiving a huge amount of free publicity and James, well, nothing. It kept getting widely reported that it was a Mars bar. So Cadbury sort of said, well, everyone thinks it's a Mars bar. Uh, Why we then say it's Cadbury's? The whole thing got skewed. I mean, the whole, it was just, I think, once you start being shifty and trying to make money from something like this and such, it, it's just, it all goes badly. Roll back the clock. I just say to Harry, look, forget the chocolate bars. They're just not important. James readily admits that even considering endorsements was a mistake, perhaps making him look greedy instead of reflecting his personal values. So he walked away from potential opportunities to attach his name and image to cold and cold beer and cold power laundry detergent. You know, by that stage, I was back working and 
you know, my focus was back on my medical studies and I was thinking, well, if I'm going to work as a doctor, I can't go around endorsing beers. I remember about a year later, about a year after the event, I was working on a neurology ward and I was surrounded by these patients that had terrible illnesses like multiple sclerosis and motor neuron disease and my pager goes off and it's to call Harry Miller. So I ring him up and he says, oh, James, coal power detergent, I want to do an ad and I'll have you up on the mountain washing your jacket because you spilt some chocolate on your jacket. What do you think? And I thought, you must be insane. Surely. (laughs) I said, no, thanks. And Harry said, okay, just running it by you. James Scott's association with the agency waned when he chose to drop from public view around the 12-month anniversary of the rescue. The survivor has spent almost 30 years since then building his reputation and credentials as a respected Australian child and adolescent psychiatrist. James walked with a slightly unsteady gait as he led me from a waiting room in his Brisbane office to a private room where we could talk. He still carries the physical effects of his near-death experience, poor eyesight and balance from a vitamin deficiency. The Iceman also carries a healthy scepticism of the media, knowing better than most the personal impact of being built up and torn down publicly. I knew I was stupid. I didn't need other people telling me that. Um, They had a right to say it, but I just didn't need to hear it. What people didn't have a right to say was it was a hoax because it was true. It was just a really hard time and hearing going through all that and then hearing that people didn't believe it, that just added trauma. It was really sad that for a while there I thought that I wished that I hadn't been found. I wish I'd just died up in the mountain, that I didn't have to come back and face all these problems. It's terrible that someone can get to the point where they wish I were dead as a result of what's being reported in the media. At least some degree of trauma is commonly shared by family and friends of those directly impacted. James's family undoubtedly felt helpless when he was missing, then powerless when besieged by news crews. He says the tone of the media coverage compounded their distress and affected some of his friendships. People were really confused because they knew me as a person and the image that was being portrayed in the media was completely different about someone who was kind of money-hungry and wanting to, you know, trying to wheeling and dealing and all the rest. And there were some people who kind of I knew well and they close friends and sort of said, oh, look, I think the way you're behaving is not so good and such. And I, I felt really hurt by that. And I suppose I distanced myself from those people because I just didn't want to hear that sort of advice at the time it was you know I didn't want to have to defend myself again to my friends about the media people would also talk about how awful the media were and keep harping on about it and I think they thought they were trying to help me but I just didn't want to hear about it and tend to distance myself from those people as well so in some ways you know as a result of the media coverage I isolated myself from some of the people who I was really close to James singles out his local newspaper. Yeah, the Korean Mail, they really came back at us. They were really bad sports about it. 
They took it badly that the Murdoch press didn't get the story. Courier Mail was the biggest paper in town, still is. If I had been more savvy, I'd probably go with them, if only just to settle things down in my hometown and have people who kind of interact with me see the story through a different lens. To a traumatised person, any misrepresentation, misleading information or factual inaccuracy can feel like a betrayal of trust, even when sloppiness is to blame. The media would say that I went to one part of Nepal when I was a completely different part. That used to really upset me. I think, how could they get this wrong? I think when someone's traumatised, they get very finicky about the details. When there's inaccuracies, people who are traumatised get upset. For me, I was just exceptionally sensitive about every detail and I wasn't happy with anything which kind of wasn't accurate. I really think that what would be helpful when a person's traumatised is to be able to check what's going out in the media, but of course that's not possible. It's very hard for audiences to identify when a story has been faithfully told or twisted without inside knowledge or a point of comparison. In 1993, a year after the rescue, James and his sister Joanne sought to regain some control over the way their experience was represented, co-writing the book Lost in the Himalayas as a personal and factual account. The story had been portrayed in a way that just didn't capture the whole narrative. What the book did was it gave us a chance to set the record straight. It gave us a chance to put the events in a bigger context. And for me, that was really important because I had this whole episode buzzing around my head. I couldn't let go of it. I couldn't stop thinking about it because, you know, I was worried I'd forget the detail. Sitting down and writing the story It gave an account from Joanne and my perspectives as to what happened. And it's like once I'd done that, I could forget about it. James hoped the book would also offer a more complete picture of his individual character. News audiences often only skim stories, latching onto those elements of most interest, gaining an impression and moving on. So journalists keep coverage simple typically representing people in ways that can be easily understood, like hero or villain. It was such a black and white portrayal. It's either all very good or very bad. And I know well and truly that I'm neither of those. I think like most people, I'm a, you know, a complex person. We're all complex people. And the media failed to capture the nuances of me and my story and my family. It was all black and white. Time and training have helped James process why a traumatised person would engage with the media in the first place. People are saying, well, you've got a choice, but I don't know if one does. There's enormous public pressure to speak. It's like you're expected to tell your story. I've seen people trying to hold out, you know, I've seen like politicians and people who are really media savvy trying to hold out on information, not answer questions, and eventually they bow to public pressure. You know, I think for people who've been through significant trauma, who've got no experience in the media, no idea of what their rights are and what they're not, and they don't have resources or resilience, they've got no chance of holding out. My advice would be if you can avoid the media, do so. It's just so much easier. It just complicates things. But assuming that that's not possible... 
I think the most useful thing you can do when you get that sort of request is just to sort of hold out for a bit and think about how you're going to do it. The Himalayan survivor would encourage those ordinary people unexpectedly involved in newsworthy events to carefully consider who they should talk with and the ramifications of opening their personal life to public scrutiny. I think some people are more willing to share things about themselves than others. Some people have a need to talk about themselves, to tell people about their lives. I think it's really difficult for people who've been traumatised to know where the boundary between private and public should be. You know, it's a fluid boundary at the best of times trying to work out what you should share and what you should keep private. And when you're traumatised, that boundary becomes even more porous. I've tried to maintain my private life as my private life since these events and I've worked hard at it and I've tried to be careful. But it means I have to keep saying no. For a long time I'll say no to interviews and such. And, you know, that's pretty uncomfortable too. You don't like saying no to people. Uh, You sometimes feel like you're letting people down, but I think it's the best action I could have taken. If caught in a media feeding frenzy again, James is certain he'd try to enlist professional help. But having survived to marry, raise three children and build a successful career, he prefers to focus on his blessings rather than past bitterness towards some sections of the so-called fourth estate. I tried to just get back on track with my life as soon as I could. I got back to my studies as early as I could. Gay and I went ahead of our wedding as was planned. I never hid myself from public. I'd just go out and do my shopping like I do each weekend. And I remember at the time I'd be walking around shopping centres and people turning and watching because, I don't know, they kind of didn't expect to see me there. I don't know what they thought I'd be doing, but, you know, I was just doing what I did every other week before getting lost. I just tried to get back to doing. In all that time, no one ever came up to me and said, was it a hoax? It was always kind of pleasant and positive. He found that minimising his public profile as the Iceman by rejecting requests for interviews has made his job as a psychiatrist easier. James doesn't want clients to see him as a miracle man or celebrity. People who work very close to me usually aren't aware that this event occurred. I don't tell them. They don't know that I've spent that time up in Nepal. There's no need for them, though, because it doesn't really affect what I do today. His name is reasonably common, but about once every couple of months, someone will recognise James as the red-haired medical student who endured six weeks alone in the freezing Himalayas, not the research psychiatrist. I know you. You're the guy that got lost in Himalayas. It's just striking, you know, how some people have this ability to remember faces. It's remarkable. It's a rare person that can do that, I think. But some people do. I'll just be at a shopping centre or somewhere and people just come up and say, oh, I know who you are. James Scott considers he has two media lives, one as a researcher and one as a trauma survivor. While he'd prefer to be known for his professional achievements, the reality is he'll always be the Iceman. It's part of his life story woven into his identity, something he can't escape. James just hopes that sharing his story will encourage the media to reflect on its practices and help other ordinary people who suddenly find themselves in the spotlight. I think you poor bastard. 
I feel a lot of sympathy for them because I know they're in for a terrible time. But hopefully it'll just be a storm in a teacup. Time will go on and it'll pass them by and they'll get back on with life fairly quickly. Next time, The Sole Survivor. A wall of mud and water buried two ski lodges. Stuart Diver was emotionally shattered, physically weak and vulnerable to demands from gung-ho reporters when he was pulled from the rubble of the Threadbow landslide in 1997. Medical teams treated the ski instructor's traumatised body and mind, while an agent was called in to prevent further injury to his privacy. Stuart quickly learned he was a commodity to the media, with a name and image that could be used in the pursuit of audiences. So why shouldn't he protect his own interests? I'm firmly of the belief that if you're going to make money out of someone else's tragedy, and that's what they're all going to do, then you have to pay for that. It's, it's just not a free service. 18 people died in the Australian ski resort disaster, including Stuart Diver's wife, Sally. He alone emerged to discover what it's like to become an accidental celebrity. The Accidental Celebrity Series is researched, written and produced by me, Fiona Reynolds. Sound design, Term 6 Podcast Productions. Graphics, Cheeky Turtle Productions. Editorial and production support, Sally Eels, Paula Donovan, Sue Bell and Graham Maddy. The term Accidental Celebrity was coined by leading Australian academics Graham Turner, Francis Bonner and David Marshall. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.